0: So, Lord, we ask that you would bless your word and make it clear to our minds. Give us a will to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew 16, 19, Jesus said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, keys open things that are locked, don't they? In Acts chapter 2, Peter uses the keys to open up the kingdom to the Jews they're incorporated into the body of Christ, 3,000 are converted, and in chapter 10, he uses the keys to open them to the Gentiles, Cornelius and his household, and a flood of Gentiles begin coming into the church. And evidently to Luke, this story that we have here was really important because he repeats it three times in the book of Acts. Here, and then in another abbreviated form in chapter 11, verses one to 18, and then in chapter fifteen, an even more abbreviated form, he repeats the same thing. So three different times. So, so to Luke, this was a, a watershed event in in the history of the church. And because we have such a huge chunk of scripture, we're not going to go in depth in, into every verse. But what I'd like to do is just simply pour out, pull out of this, uh, four major themes, and seek to apply them to our lives. So this is a, a long story about how Cornelius and his household became Christians. So let's pull out four themes. First one is this, religion can't save. That's the first theme I see here. Let's take a look at verse 1. There is a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. Caesarea. Have you ever looked at that word and noticed that it spells the name Caesar? Caesar. That's because it was a seaport city named after Caesar Augustus. It was 33 miles north of Joppa. Remember, Peter is staying in Joppa right now. He's staying with a tanner uh, named Simon by the sea. 33 miles north is the man called Cornelius. And so God is going to link these two men together so that Peter brings him the message of the gospel. Uh, Caesarea was the headquarters for Roman occupation forces. So if the Jews ever got out of line, or if there was a rebellion or a revolt, there in Caesarea, not too far away from Jerusalem, there were Roman soldiers all already occupied, ready to, to go wherever they needed to go to establish peace. And we're told that he was a centurion. So a centurion, the Roman army was divided up into different levels. You had one unit called a century, That was 100 soldiers. And then you had what was called a cohort. That was six centuries or 600 soldiers. And then you had what was called a legion. And a legion was 10 cohorts or 6,000 soldiers. So a century is 100. A cohort is 600. A legion is 6,000. This man here, Cornelius, he's a centurion, meaning he's the leader of 100 men. So he had a very important and responsible position within the Roman army. Because of that, we can assume that he would have, have, have to have been a, a disciplined man, submissive to authority, reliable, and courageous. Those are some of the traits that you, any, any army is going to look for in someone who's appointed as an officer among them. So I think we can probably reasonably assume that those are some of the qualities that he would have had. We are also told in verse 2, he was a devout man. The word devout simply means devoted. There was devotion in his life. What is he devout or devoted to? Well, it appears religion, the Jewish religion. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So we're told three things about his Devotion. Number one, he feared God with his household. That would mean that he rejected all of the other Roman gods, and there were many of them, in favor of the one true God of Israel. So that was remarkable in and of itself, that a non-Jew would get rid of all the other gods and say, I am going to devote myself to the true and living God, the God of Israel, Jehovah. So he would have known that God possessed almighty power, all authority, and that all people would be judged by him one day. And it tells us that his whole household followed him in this. He and all his household. So he was a leader. His household followed his example when he followed Jehovah. And we're also told that he feared God. In that day, there was something called a God-fearer. And a God-fearer was a Gentile who had attached himself to Judaism they attended the synagogue, but they hadn't got circumcised. So they hadn't gone through the initiation rite to become a Jew, but they had done everything else. They believed in God, they were following God, they went to synagogue, but they just hadn't actually taken that final step of circumcision to become a Jew themselves. We're told he, he feared God, so I, I'm assuming that that meant he was a God-fearer, a Gentile who had attached themselves to the, the Jewish faith. And we're also told that he gave alms to the Jewish people. So he was generous. When he saw Jewish people in need, he helped them. He gave to them. And not only that, but he prayed to God continually. So he was a man of prayer. You start to get the feeling like, this is a very special person. You're not gonna find a whole lot of people like this. A Gentile who acts more like a devout Jew than most Jews do, right? And we also find in verse 4 that God said that his prayers had ascended as a memorial before God. God remembered his prayers. They were a memorial to him. Like incense, constantly going up. His prayers are constantly going up to God. And in chapter 10, verse 22... This is what it says. They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man. So they they call him a righteous man. I don't think they're talking about in terms of being justified by faith. They're simply saying when you look at his life, he was a righteous man. He he sought to obey the law of God, even though he was a Gentile. The law of God was important to him, and he sought to, to do right by that law. And we're also told in verse 22 that he was well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. So he was respected, well spoken, even admired, you might say, by the rest of the Jewish nation. This says a whole lot because he was a leader of the hated Romans. The Jews hated the Romans because the Romans... Were the occupying force and and the Jews were under their thumb. And they felt resentment towards that. And here you've got a soldier in the Roman army over the Jews. But yet the Jews love him and respect him and speak well of him. So this is really a, a very interesting individual. There's a lot that we can say in praise of this man. But what we notice about him is he still needs to be saved in spite of all of that. Look at chapter 11 verse 14. Simon's supposed to go and speak words to you to Cornelius by which you will be saved you and all your household so he wasn't saved he needed to be saved in spite of all of his religious attainments and works he still was not saved he if he perished in that condition we would assume that that meant that he would be under the wrath of God and not saved in spite of all of his good works and his almsgiving, and his prayers, and the fact that he was well spoken of by the entire nation of Israel. So we learn from this, religion cannot save us. He's a model non-Christian, in fact, he's a model Christian. He probably puts Christians to shame. If, If you take our life and stack it up against Cornelius, do we pray night and day? Are we constantly giving alms? Does God say, your prayers have ascended as a memorial to me. I'm such, so devout when it comes to that. Leading our household in the ways of God. He, he, there's a lot in his life to look up to and, and to, to give praise for. He's like the, the neighbor that lives next to you. Who's very religious. Goes to church three times a week. He feeds the homeless. He prays constantly. He's a great neighbor. Everybody in the neighborhood loves him. But yet He's lost. He's religious, yet lost. Church can't save you, and religion can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Uh, We, over the years, we have gone door-to-door, done evangelism door-to-door. We've done it at the light rail. We've all kinds of different ways in the parks. And one of the things I like to use when we do that is a survey where I'll ask people questions to find out where they're at spiritually. And one of the things I've learned by doing that of talking to hundreds of people there's a pattern that emerges these people by and large believe it. they believe in God they believe that they have sinned they believe there is an afterlife there is a heaven there is a hell all of those things pretty much they they do believe in Uh, they believe that they're going to heaven and the reason they believe they're going to heaven is because they're a good person (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so they're orthodox all the way up until that point, And it's always at that point that they go wrong. Where they become unbiblical. They've been biblical all the way. Yes, they believe in God. They believe in an afterlife. They believe they're a sinner. But they believe they're going to heaven because of something that they've done. Their good works. They point to themselves as the reason for their salvation. And, and folks, you, you need to stop pointing at yourself. If, if you're doing that, please stop. Don't trust in yourself. If you trust in yourself, you'll be damned. No one trusting in themselves is going to be saved. We must trust in Christ. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Amen. It's not our works, it's His It's not our goodness, it's His goodness. It's He's the one. And all of our faith is in Him. We we attach ourselves to Him. We're we're united to Him through faith. And then all that He is and all that He has done is put to your account. So Jesus is Christianity. You see, it's not religion. It's not joining this church or that church. It's Jesus Christ and having union to Him. Relationship, saving relationship to Him. So don't go wrong with in, in, in this don't think that it's religion devotion to a religion even Christianity as a as a philosophy even that is not what saves a person it's the, the the Christ in Christianity that saves the living person you know it actually makes it even harder for a person to get saved if they're a devout in their religion because then they, often will have sort of a self-righteous, look what I've done, look at all my prayers, look at my fasting, look at, I'm in the word every day, and they start to think that by what they do, God will accept them. That's gotta be shattered. If the ground of their acceptance is themselves or what they've done, that's gotta be shattered before that person can ever embrace a true and living faith. They've got to see their own self and their own righteousness as nothing And Christ is everything. So that's the first thing I think that we see in this passage. And God is teaching us. Religion can't save. Um, Second one is that God takes the initiative. Because God was the one that sent the angel to Cornelius. Right? The angel didn't just appear out of nowhere. God sent him on a mission. God decided that he was going to have dealings with this man, Cornelius. He was gonna bring the message of the gospel to him in order to save him. Uh, We find in verses three through six, the story of how the angel comes. He gives him uh, this vision. He he tells him that your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who's called Peter. He, He gives him the address. He's staying with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. So go get him. Now, isn't it interesting? God could have saved everyone a lot of time and headache and trouble by just talking to him right then. And saying, hey, my son came to the earth and died and he, he died for your sin. He rose from the dead. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. But God doesn't do that. And, he, and the angel didn't do it either. The angel said, you need to send for Simon and he'll tell you the words by which you'll be saved. So God has given the church the privilege and the responsibility of being the ones through whom he works to bring his gospel to lost people. Ordinarily, God doesn't speak the gospel himself, and he doesn't even have angels do it. that's, That's our job. He's given it to his church. Okay, so God gives this, not only does he give the angelic visitation to Cornelius, he gives Peter a vision. So we're just seeing the initiative of God here. He sends the angel to Cornelius. Then, as these men are on their way to meet Peter, God's giving Peter a vision up on the rooftop. And he's showing him all of these animals that he's not supposed to eat. They're not kosher for the Jewish faith. And he says, go ahead and kill and eat. What does Peter do? No, no, Lord. No, I've never done that. I'll never do that. The Lord says it again. No, kill and eat. And it happens three times. And Peter doesn't know what to make of all this. But yet, down below, while all this is happening. Okay, verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. In calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, notice this the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings. The same kind of thing happened to Philip in chapter 8. The Spirit told him to go join the chariot. Here, the Spirit has to tell him, Don't have any misgivings. I know they're Gentiles. I know you're a Jew. I know you're not used to this, but come down from the rooftop and go with them back because I've got a job for you to do. So you see God working on one end with Cornelius. He's working on the other end with Simon, preparing him by giving him this vision of the animals. And then the spirit actually telling him, come on, go with them. I've got something for you to do. And in verse 28... Is that the verse I want? Let me see. By the time we roll around to verse 28, which is a few days later, Peter's starting to understand the vision that God had given him. Because he says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. See, in the vision he saw there were were animals that were unclean animals for food. But by this time, a couple days later, he had been thinking about that vision, and he, it clicked. Oh, God wasn't really trying to get me to change my diet. God wants me to not call any man unholy or unclean. Not animals. It's people that God is interested in here. So the Lord had been helping him to understand this vision. So he's working on Cornelius. He's working on Peter. And he's taking a sovereign activity to initiate this whole thing on, on either end. And when we go over to uh, chapter 11, verse 18. It says, When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God has granted it. Repentance is not something that we muster up as though it's our contribution to salvation. Well, Jesus did his part, and now you've got to do your part. The way the Bible puts it is that God grants it. He grants to the Gentiles this repentance that leads to life. So you start to see God's activity going on. Cornelius, Peter, he's granting repentance that leads to life. And we find, even in this story, that, that the Lord is sovereign when it comes to saving a people for his name. Of all the Gentiles on the earth, God chose this one, Cornelius. Cornelius. He didn't have to choose him. He didn't have to send an angel to him. He didn't have to prepare Peter, but he did because he had his plan in mind. He went to great lengths. And we say, well, wait a minute. Wasn't God just responding to Cornelius because it says that his prayers ascended as a memorial before God? Wasn't it his righteousness that God was looking down on? I really don't think so because in in Romans 3.11, it says that no man seeks for God. So if Cornelius was seeking God, I have to assume then that God was prior seeking Cornelius, that that God had a plan for him, and so he was stirring him. The Bible talks about the the Father drawing us, and I think that's what's going on in Cornelius' life. That's why he was so interested in the God of Israel. I mean, that's remarkable in and of itself, that a Gentile would be so... Uh, fascinated with the God of Israel, that his whole life would be consumed in praying to him and giving alms to God's chosen people. So we saw the same thing back in um, the, the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw that God took Philip, an evangelist, who's having a thriving evangelistic ministry in Samaria, and he takes him and withdraws him from that place and tells him to go way over here to a desert road to speak to one guy. God was sovereign. He initiated that work with the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw it in Saul. Saul was hell-bent on destroying the church and wiping out Christianity. And he, was, he wasn't even content to stay in Jerusalem. Now he's going to Damascus, 100 miles away or 150 miles away. He, he was just possessed. Almost as though he was demon-possessed, it seemed. You know, I've got to destroy the church. But yet, Jesus himself reveals himself to him, blinds him, and Saul is converted on that day through a sovereign work which, which God initiates in his life. So we just see again as we're working through the book of Acts the sovereign activity of God in conversion and in salvation. He's the initiator. Hebrews 12.2 says that, that God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So, an author. The author is the one who writes the book. It's his, it's his plot. It's his mind. It's his story. He's the creator of this book. That's what, that's what he means here. He's the author of our faith. He is the, uh, the one who starts it and the one who perfects it all the way until we reach glory. Like in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So folks, he deserves glory from you. Because he started your faith and he will perfect it. He deserves your glory. He deserves the honor from your life. So that's the second theme I saw. The third one is we are to invite all people to Christ. This was difficult for Peter. This is very difficult for him. He had a Jewish cultural background, and the Jews of his day really believed that salvation was only for Israel. Or someone who is willing to become a Jew. If you're a Gentile, if you would become a Jew through circumcision, well, then you could be saved too. But it was limited. And in in Peter's day... The Jews, had, they were encrusted over, with hundreds of years of Jewish tradition. They thought that you had to become a Jew first if you were to really become part of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we have going on, and that's what is finally overturned when we get to Acts chapter 15. We have this big council in Jerusalem, and they decide, no, you don't have to become a Jew. You're, you become a Christian through faith in Christ, not through circumcision and not keeping the law of Moses. So this was very difficult for Peter. The Jews had actually stayed in Jerusalem where Jesus had told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. They stayed in Jerusalem for probably about 10 years. (laughs) And they're just now starting to branch out to obey Jesus. And I think it was because they... The, the the culture that they had grown up with, it was so embedded in their minds and in their thinking that it was so difficult to even conceive of the idea that uncircumcised Gentiles could be brought into God's kingdom without becoming Jews first. In 1028, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man... Yeah, for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. I think Peter is so uncomfortable with this whole situation that he blurts out an insult (laughs) to the people that he, to Cornelius and his household. It's like him saying, uh, like a visitor coming into your home and saying something like, "Um, I'm coming into your home, even though I know it's very dirty. I'll come in anyway. Well, he's saying here, I, I'm, I'm not supposed to associate with you, yet God has shown me that I shouldn't call any man unholy or unclean. Even though you are unholy and unclean, I'm going to come into your house anyway, and I'm going to talk to you. It was almost a backhanded insult. But, but Peter, I think he's, he doesn't know what to do with himself. This is so foreign to his way of thinking. We've got to hand it to him, though. He, he follows the Lord, and he eventually gets to the gospel. <laughs> Um, Look at verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. So he's starting to get it. Okay, God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, not just the Jewish nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of who? All... So we're starting to see that Peter's getting it. He's Lord of all. He doesn't show partiality. Every nation, there are people that can come to him. And then in verses 37 to 41, he preaches the gospel. He talks about the righteous life of Jesus Christ, talks about his death, and then talks about his resurrection, the great historical facts connected to the gospel of Christ, And then in verse 42 and 43, he mentions the Great Commission. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So he presents Jesus Christ as a judge. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And that only through faith in Christ can someone be forgiven of their sins. So he really presents the idea of Jesus is either your judge or your savior. If you want him to be your savior, you need to put your faith in him. All those who will not put their faith in him, he's going to be their judge. The judge of the living and the dead. So it was really a um, repent or perish kind of message that he's giving to them. And he mentions everyone who believes. Everyone who believes, not everyone who is circumcised, or everyone who is baptized, or everyone who does this number of good works. Faith is the human condition that he gives to them for their salvation. So what happens? The Holy Spirit interrupts his sermon. Verse 44. While Peter is still speaking these words, so in (laughs) mid-sentence, something happens. The Holy Spirit fell, he's poured out upon them, and they began to speak in other tongues. Right in the middle of the sermon, they start speaking in other tongues. So the Holy Spirit has fallen on this group of people. And given them the supernatural sign gift. So, we need to ask ourselves a few questions about that. Um, I think we can assume that when Peter said, All who believe in him, in verse 43... Receives forgiveness of sins. I think we can assume at that point that this group of of Jewish. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, Gentiles. This group of Gentiles there in Cornelius's household. They did believe. They believed what Peter was preaching, and they were forgiven. And the Spirit falls on them at that point. Um, in eleven seventeen. He says, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could stand in God's way? So God gave uh, Peter and the rest of the apostles there the Holy Spirit after they believed in Jesus. And it apparently he did the same thing for Cornelius and his household. They believed and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, why did God give them the gift of tongues? Supernatural gift where they could speak in another language that they never learned before. Uh, This didn't happen with the Ethiopian eunuch. There's no record of him speaking in tongues. And there's no record of the Apostle Paul speaking in tongues when he's converted. But it did happen to the Jews on Pentecost. And it did happen here. Uh, Some scholars call this a Gentile Pentecost. Chapter 10. God incorporates the Jews into the body of Christ in chapter 2 and he gives them this ability to speak in other languages as a sign that they have been incorporated into Christ's church. And then here in chapter 10 the very same thing happens again. They speak in tongues. They're incorporated into the same church. What would have happened if these Gentiles had just been baptized without any kind of a a demonstrable sign? Do Do you suppose they're there would be some reservation on the part of the other Jews. I wonder if they're really saved. Do they really have the same status that we do? We're Jews, they're not. And we're a cut above them. And I think, in order to prevent disunity and that kind of us versus them mentality within the church at large, God gave them the very same thing to them that He gave to the Jews. They both spoke in tongues. So Peter says, Who is I to stand in God's way? They need to be baptized. God evidently saved them. And this also teaches us that baptism is not a requirement for salvation because the Spirit fell on them before they got baptized. I know that there are many different denominations that do hold that uh, baptism is absolutely essential to salvation. You can't go to heaven without being baptized. But this, this passage here proves to me that no, these people had the Spirit before they were baptized. So here are two truths. Anyone under heaven can be saved if they only believe. That was the condition Peter gave. They believed, they were saved. And the only condition is faith in Jesus Christ. So we are saved by grace alone, not our human merit. We're saved through faith alone, not our works, and we're saved in Christ alone. Not by any other person or any other thing. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Th- those are some of the truths that the reformers brought out in the 1500s. Back in the 16th century. And they're, they're still golden. They're still valid today. So here we've got three big themes so far, right? Uh, religion can't save. God is the initiator. We must invite all. That's the last thing we saw. We don't exclude anyone because God is no... Uh, He's not a God of partiality. He shows no no partiality. He invites all to come. Gentiles and Jews. Every race under heaven. The the last theme that I saw here is the the sinfulness of racism. We see that because Peter and the Jews found it difficult to believe that the Gentiles could be saved through faith alone. And when you see that all the way through the, the... Let's just trace it. Chapter 10 verse 14. God gives him this vision, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, I've never done it. I'm not going to do it. And then verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So God is hammering away at Peter, trying to get him to understand, no, it's okay. You can invite the Gentiles. It's all right. Verse 34, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Verse 47, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? I mean, it's almost like he's struggling with this, but he says, hey, God save them. Who am I to withhold the waters of baptism? So God is taking four big hammer blows to destroy Peter's prejudices and help him to understand that salvation is not confined to one race, the Jewish race. It's a worldwide faith that God invites all men under heaven, all men on the earth to embrace. So the hammer blow of a divine vision, he gives him the vision of the animals. The hammer blow of a divine command, get down from that rooftop and go with these men to their house. He commanded him to do that. The hammer blow of divine preparation, he was preparing Cornelius by sending him an angel. And the hammer blow of a divine sign, the speaking in other tongues. So God is whack, 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 whack. He he needed to get through to Peter that Peter had this idea that the Jews were superior to the Gentiles. The Jews would even say things like, the Gentiles are dogs. They're fit only to be fuel for the fires of hell. A Jew would not associate or fellowship with a Gentile. He felt like if he got too close, he would become unclean. He couldn't touch him. He couldn't have any dealings with him. He was better than the Gentile. And God is saying, no, that is not the truth. That is not the case. All men are sinners before me. All are invited to come to me. And Peter's finally getting that message through many different hammer blows. And it teaches us that racism, which is one race thinking they're superior to another race, is not the will of God, that it's sinful. And it happens all over the world. Here in America, primarily it happened between whites and blacks for for hundreds of years. But that's not the only racism that we see. We see people being prejudiced against Mexicans. You find people being prejudiced against Chinese people. In fact, at one point when we were trying to build that railroad from the east coast to the west coast the only people they could find willing to do the dangerous work were chinese and thousands of them died they had to dynamite through mountains you know. To so uh, people treating people as inferior or less than that's what racism is and here we find the lord correcting peter no he's saying no that's not the case you're not better than them you all stand as sinners at the foot of the cross, you all need the grace of God. None of you are better than anybody else. We're all sinners, needing the grace of God. I remember one time where we were, we were witnessing and we invited this black couple to our church and um, they were really nervous. They kept asking me, are you sure it's okay that we go? I said, of course it is. What do you mean? And why why would you even ask that? And they said, because we tried to go to this other white church and um, we found out that the pastor didn't like blacks and even suggested that they didn't come there, that they find a black church to go to. That actually, that actually did happen in my experience. And... (laughs) I mean, I guess I kind of understand because everyone's got their own cultural background and sometimes you feel more comfortable in a certain cultural space. But um, it's not right. It's not right that we would have people of all different races and we're all splitting up into our own race and going to church and fellowship only with people just like us. I, I thank God that we... In our own fellowship, we, we've been able to embrace different cultures and different races. I mean, Ephesians chapter 2, when the Apostle Paul wrote that letter, he said that God has broken down the barrier, the dividing wall that divided Jew from Gentile, and he's made us one new man in the body of Christ. In the, in the church at Rome, you didn't have the church of Jesus Christ made up only of Gentiles and the church of Jesus Christ made up only of Jews, they were brought together in one body. And that's the will of God. The new, who, whoever comes to Christ, we, we come together. It, it's been said that you, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family, right? You're born into a family. And the church is our family. We're born into, when we're born again, we're born into the family of God. And so we don't choose our family. They are who they are. <laughs> and we embrace them. In Romans 15, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you to the glory of God. So here's the command. We are to accept one another just as Christ accepted us. Sometimes that's hard because we might have to accept people that we have very little in common with except for Christ. They come from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different locations, different education, all kinds of stuff. But that's what the the church is made up of, a bunch of people from all different kinds of walks of life that love Jesus, and we're family now. And we've been brought into one body. Mahatma Gandhi, in his autobiography, he wrote that in his student days, he went to England to study... He was deeply touched by reading the Gospels, and he wanted to know more about Christianity. So back in Calcutta, he decided to visit a Christian church, and he did. He attended the church service. He wanted to ask the minister for enlightenment about Christ and about becoming a Christian after the service. But he was told he wasn't welcome in that church because that church was—the only people permitted to attend that church were whites or high-caste Indians— and he wasn't white, and he wasn't a high-caste Indian. So he left there disillusioned with Christianity. He ended up by saying, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian. Wow. Wow. He turned his back on Christ. He, he was enamored with Jesus. He just didn't like Jesus' people. And that's a, bad, that's a blight on us. So as, as we wrap up our time today, I, I just want you to remember these Four great truths. Religion cannot save you. God can and God will. God takes the initiative in salvation. He's commanded us to invite all. Not just the people that we think might be interested. All. Sometimes when we've gone out witnessing. There'll be a big burly... Like a hell's angel type with <laughs> tattoos all over the place and gigantic muscles. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to go talk to that guy. He's going to punch me in the face. But if I do it, if I go ahead and talk to him, I find out he, he's, he's like a, a big pussycat. You know, he, he's the most interested one of all of them in talking about Christ. So we shouldn't prejudge who would be open to the gospel. <laughs> we never know. So we invite all. And and racism is sinful. If we have traces of racism in our hearts, let's root it out. Let's ask God to root it out. If we in any way feel superior to any other people because of the color of our skin or the race that we came from, that's, that's wrong before God. That's sin. And we need to be humble and just freely embrace and love all of God's people, whoever they might be. That's it for today. Lord, would you please take these truths and help us to see where we lack. And may we truly, truly embrace all in love, Lord. May we truly invite all that we see, putting no barriers to anybody. May we give you glory for our salvation. And may we not make the mistake of thinking that religion can ever save anybody. In Jesus' name, amen.